Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in our studios today at South Carolina Public Radio are Peter Eisenstadt, who's an independent historian, Professor Darlene Clark-Hine, who is John A. Hanna Professor of History at Michigan State University, Vernon Burton, who is the Judge Matthew Perry Distinguished Professor of History at Clemson. He's actually got six other titles, but I'll stop <laughs> with that one. And Bill Hine, who's Professor Emeritus of South Carolina State University. And except for Peter, all of these folks have been with us on the journal before. We're here today to talk about a program that's going to take place up at Clemson University November the 28th through December the 1st, Lincoln's Unfinished Work. Folks, all of you, welcome to the journal. Thank you, Walter. It's always good to be here with you. And Vernon, you have sort of been the honcho for this, starting with a grant a few years back. So how about a little bit of background on how this all came about? Because you don't just get 30 people together. I know Clemson's really rich, but you've got to get grant money from somewhere else. That's right. This began actually with the Lincoln Bicentennial, and I was able to get a grant for what I call Lincoln's unfinished work. And for Lincoln's unfinished work for me, that is about race. Other people are defined in other ways, but Lincoln in his two greatest speeches, the Gettysburg Address and then the second inaugural, in both of these he talked about the unfinished work. And I think that is the unfinished work of America and democracy. So that's what we're going about. And I started with the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation, the Congressional uh, Commission, and then the foundation was set up, initially funded this, and then I was able to get the Watson Brown Foundation to also help fund it, and then the South Carolina Humanities uh, gave us a grant, and uh, then we got some money from Clemson uh, that is coming in from the what is called the Humanities Hub. And uh, it's both a conference and then part of it is a workshop as well, which I think is very important. We will have an academic conference. We'll begin with a keynote by Eric Foner, who really is the sort of person the most associated as a scholar with the Reconstruction period, who in fact uh, did a lot of his research when he was at the University of South Carolina. And Vernon, and I also need to, to note that Eric participated uh, in programs at USC Beaufort right. and helped create the Reconstruction Historic District in South Carolina. That's right. And two of the other participants who are confirmed are the two historians, Kate Masseur and Gregory Downs, who were part of the National Park Service Commission that helped get the National Monument on Reconstruction at Beaufort and uh, Penn Center and other places as well. So that's actually going to be one of our panels will be on monuments and naming and buildings and what that means. And uh, since it's Lincoln's unfinished work, we're, we're not just talking about Reconstruction, but about bringing it to present day. How, in fact, has our past shaped us in ways of what we think? how we do things and why we think about things. And so on Saturday after a keynote luncheon, we will do a workshop for school teachers and the public as well. And what we're going to talk about is very difficult. Uh, You know, I really believe that public school teachers are doing God's work in terms of their teaching. And one of the toughest things is in the state of South Carolina is how to teach about the history of race relations. And Walter and I have a have a thing we get together, we really commiserate because there's so little South Carolina history itself being taught in colleges these days. But I think it's important that we give some ways that we can deal with this most difficult of topics because I really do believe that one of the biggest problems we have is we have ignored it. And by ignoring it, we don't understand. I would agree with that. But, Bill, this is something you've dealt with personally, teaching at, at, at State College. Folks coming in not more a lot about South Carolina history, although State College does still offer a course in South Carolina history, one of the few public institutions in the state to offer it on a regular basis. But the whole question of race, that's been a part of your work ever since you got your Ph.D. Exactly right. Uh, South Carolina is uh, the nation's laboratory for uh, race from the colonial era, now well into the 21st Uh, century. You can't talk about the history of the colony or of the state of South Carolina without discussing uh, race. And to a significant extent, 
South Carolina history is uh, African-American history. You incorporate many people who settled this state, developed this state, grew to a modern uh, society, a technological society with Boeing at one end of the state and BMW at the other end of the state. It wouldn't be the state that it is today uh, without the contributions of all of the people who have lived here and continue to reside here. Darlene, in your work, and particularly dealing with uh, African-American women, it's not just a, a question of race, but it's also a question of gender. Exactly. And class. One of the things that's most important to me is to fully integrate the experiences and contributions of uh, African-American women, whether they're in South Carolina or any other southern state, into the making of this country. There were a number of very important black women who assisted Lincoln's effort to uh, win the Civil War and to free the slaves, so to speak. Well, I feel like we have to throw in the sisters during Reconstruction who actually were pushing to have women the right to vote mm-hmm. as part of Reconstruction in South Carolina. The Rollins sisters. The Rollins sisters. Yes. And that was way ahead of its time. I I wish that um, there could be a movie uh, made about the Rollins sisters. I think that would be absolutely fascinating and riveting. Mm -hmm. All right, Peter, how and when did you get involved with this project? Vernon asked me to help him. I'm a historian who lives in Clemson, worked in a number of areas, and um, Vernon asked me to help, and it's been an exciting journey to work on the um, project. As you can tell, Walter, since I said I got the first grant in 2012, if I hadn't got Peter involved fairly recently, we'd still be looking for a date down the line. So he's been a (laughs) real godsend to help me. I I thought about something when you folks were speaking. I often joke and say that there are two things that change the South and South Carolina, air conditioning, the Voting Rights Act, and we tend to understand how air conditioning works better because we see the importance of STEM and science. But in our country today, maybe never more so than right now, in terms of democracy, we have to understand our history as well. And I think it is critical that we we understand our history, all its aspects, and move from there to, to move forward to really make this dream of Lincoln's unfinished work of a, a equal society for everyone, for equal opportunities. So that's where we're trying to go. We're, it's less about Lincoln than about that unfinished work and how that's going to play yeah, out. Let me, let me just add that we asked people not to speak about what Lincoln would have done. This is not a conference that's going to be full of counterfactual history, what would have happened if Lincoln would have lived. And as Vernon said, though there will be a lot about Reconstruction, it's by no means limited to the late 19th century. We will have panels on the 20th century and panels bringing the question of Lincoln's unfinished work down to the present. When it comes to Lincoln's unfinished work, Vernon and I are not originalists. We We are not limited narrowly to the world in April of 1865, but looking at how America has evolved in the intervening 160 years. Well, for many years at the University of South Carolina, there was an incredible professor, William A. Foran, who used to talk about the reconstructions of South Carolina and, of course, the historic period right after the Civil War. He also referred to the New Deal as a restructuring or the beginning of a restructuring of South Carolina. And, of course, when he retired, the civil rights movement was just really beginning to reach its its peak. And he would say, I think we're there in, in the third one. So let's just back up a minute and talk about how you, you know, you look at people say reconstruction. All right, we're looking at least historically 1865 to... 1877, or do you want to go back to the beginning of the Port Royal experiment? How do you want to talk about what historically we might think of as Reconstruction? And Darlene, I'll I'll throw that out to you. Hmm. Well, I think of Reconstruction as the period when African Americans, obviously I'm 
coming at it from a black perspective and a black woman's perspective. We're trying to secure their rights. The 13th Amendment had abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment made African-American citizens. The 15th Amendment was about securing the right to vote. By the time the 1870s arrived, all of those rights essentially were under attack, under assault, if you will. And for African-Americans, it was almost as if they had to fight this war all over again. And so that's when I that's why I think it's really important not just to focus on uh, Lincoln and the war and those amendments, but what happened afterwards. And so when we talk about his unfinished business, it was because Southerners tried to turn the clock back, tried to re-enslave, if you will, not technically, but to subordinate and to nullify all of those rights. So it would take another generation of struggle for African Americans to come together, build their own institutions, train their own people to continue this fight, uh, the struggle to, um, to have the right to vote, to have the rights of citizenship, to have equal access to education, et cetera. And so that's what I'm thinking of in the broad sweep of unfinished business. Well, and, and let's go back to South Carolina right after the war. And of course, there are two reconstructions then historically. You've got presidential reconstruction, and then you've got congressional reconstruction. And I think for a lot of our listeners, I'm sorry to say, because of the lack of United States history being taught in the schools today, it all kind of blends together. But they are different, and they are, there's an important difference. And Bill, I'm going to throw that one out to you. Just talk about what was presidential reconstruction, how was it supposed to work? Presidential Reconstruction uh, begins in earnest after uh, Abraham Lincoln's assassination under the vice president, now president, uh, Andrew Johnson. And uh, Johnson, uh, in a nutshell, made it relatively easy for the uh, southern states led in many cases, but not all cases, by former Confederate leaders and state leaders to uh, take uh, political control of those states, of the localities, uh, and then be readmitted to the Union. And many African Americans, people who had fought for the Union, Northerners objected, uh, and Reconstruction was begun a second time in 1867 under the auspices of the Congress, and it imposed a harsher Reconstruction, harsher from the point of view of the people who had thought that they had uh, gone through the process and had uh, virtually completed it. And with the advent of Congressional Reconstruction, black men uh, gained the right to vote. The 14th Amendment was passed and then uh, ratified, and you ushered in uh, what became for many uh, Southern white people a terrible era in American history when unlettered African Americans uh, conspired with uh, unworthy and corrupt carpetbaggers and scallywags from the South to force the whites out to endure this, this wretched period that lasted about a decade, depending on which state you were in. And finally, they were redeemed with white South Carolinians, white Alabamians, Mississippians, uh, retaking control of those states and uh, imposing control, especially political, but also economic and cultural control. Let's look specifically at South Carolina, because you said in earlier comments that South Carolina is the, the test case or the laboratory for, for all of this. And we've said this many times before. People don't realize that in 1860, as well as 1890, South Carolina was 60% African American. That was the population. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden in 1865, an overwhelming majority of the population is free. And since you're looking at male suffrage, it's, an, it's even larger because 20% of the white males in South Carolina between the ages of 18 and 35 were killed in the war. So that the, the voting percentage is, is even larger. The first governor coming in out right after the war from your part of the woods, Vernon, James L. Orr, right. who for his day was considered 
a moderate. The fir- what's the first thing that the General Assembly of South Carolina did in 1865? Enacted the Black Code. Yeah, enacted the Black Codes, mm-hmm. which in essence, as Darlene was talking about, uh, and all but all but name re-enslaved people who were now called free persons mm-hmm. of color. Mm-hmm. In many ways, it was yeah. modeled on on the restrictions that free African Americans had had before yeah. the war. Mm-hmm. Those black coats. Uh-huh. And then by the 1890s, you're really having the institutionalization of the segregation, when. Uh, a separate educational system mm-hmm. is slowly beginning to develop, and the free black people no longer have the kind of access mm-hmm. to uh, free education or college education or elementary education, and it's a slowly stripping away all of the rights that black people defined as citizenship rights and racial equality and, and so on and so forth. And it will take another half century to pull it back together again of struggle. And, of course, by the 1890s, it's not just what southern states are doing. The Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson yes. enshrines that as the law of the land. Separate but equal is... Separate but not equal. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and to go along with that, I, when you ask the... You can sort of debate the beginning of Reconstruction. I'd say it, it really begins here in South Carolina in, in the Port Royal Experiment. But I think the more interesting is the end of Reconstruction. When is it? And I, I believe it is then. It's, it's when Plessy v. Ferguson and also the Williams case, which says that African Americans no longer have the right to vote, basically. I mean, the laws are written to disfranchise. And so much of what Reconstruction, I think, is about is the excitement and the importance of the vote and how effectively African Americans and white allies use that probably for the most progressive period South Carolina has had in this constitution Mm -hmm. and the sort of things they were doing like establishing public schools Mm -hmm. and things like that over time. So that's sort of my definition of the end of Reconstruction because until then you have African Americans thinking with the next election we can get back these rights and things until the Supreme Court basically says the law of the land is segregation. Let me add that this conference, I I guess you could think of it as a series of concentric circles. Certainly there's a focus on Clemson University itself and its particular racial history. It's a focus on South Carolina. It's a focus on Reconstruction in the South. We're also dealing with some newer scholarship on Reconstruction that is seeing it as a national question. We have papers on American Indian Wars, some discussion of labor. We have papers on international relations during the later 19th century. So we see this conference that without for a second getting away from the centrality of the South South Carolina and the South and defining Reconstruction is also looking at it in broader ways as well. Folks, we need to pause for a minute, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Peter Eisenstadt, Darlene Hine, Bill Hine, and Vernon Burton, all distinguished historians, about a conference scheduled for Clemson University in November entitled Lincoln's Unfinished Work. And it's dealing with reconstruction in America from the Civil War to the present day. Bill, I want to get back to South Carolina. As Peter said, we've got concentric circles. i got to keep bringing it back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because Reconstruction in South Carolina, in many ways, was different from other states for a period of time. A lot of that had to do with demographic reality. Well, it had to do with what you you mentioned, the uh, large black population in South Carolina, uh, the reduction of the white male population, and that gave enormous political advantage to African-American men who voted just in terms of sheer numbers, which is what horrified most uh, white Southerners at the time. They had the political leverage to elect first members of the 1868 Constitutional Convention 150 years ago this this year. They uh, then in turn elected a majority in the State House of Representatives. They did not elect a majority in the State Senate. 
Uh, they did not elect a governor in the years and elections that followed, but uh, they did elect uh, lieutenant governors, uh, men like Francis Cardozo, who were secretary of state and treasurer. They elected members of Congress, beginning uh, with Joseph Rainey from Georgetown and Richard Gleaves from Beaufort and Robert Brown Elliott and Robert DeLarge and the other black men who served in the U.S. House of Representatives. So South Carolina, in terms of just uh, sheer political clout, African-American voters had more. And as a result, their office holders, the black leaders, exercised uh, more political power, too. Vernon mentioned the Constitution of 1868, which was an important step. And in looking at the correspondence in the newspapers, and it's very easy to identify, there were newspapers that were Republican newspapers, those that focused on an African-American constituency. They are, they had the vote. That had been the three amendments, the mm-hmm. 13th, 14th, and 15th took care of that. But education seemed to be the most important thing that was debated, at least when I look at the the newspaper accounts of the convention. Yeah, and Robert Smalls, uh, the Civil War hero, someone that people have finally coming to recognize just how important he was, introduces, you know, the, the legislation for public education and his story alone is we could spend the whole time talking about, but I think that's important and rather symbolic. And as Walter says, the devotion for education, even before public education is established, African Americans in their churches and any place else were already already focusing on education, how important it was for the African-American community to be citizens. The churches, particularly the Protestant denominations, and of course there were separate northern and southern, or there were national and, and southern, the Episcopalians being an exception, they sent missionaries, teachers, money to South Carolina, actually beginning with the Port Royal Experiment in, in 18... Yeah. Mm-hmm. When Mr. Porter established his academy in Charleston, got money from the National Episcopal Church, with, within six months, he had over a 1,000 students, children to today what we'd call folks looking for a continuing education. They'd never had a chance to learn the three R's. To me, that people have talked about the politics this, the politics that. It, you know, it, was, it seemed to be education, education, education. One of the things that I emphasize when I talk about South Carolina history and this era of the 1890s, is the importance of laying the groundwork for the emergence of a black middle class. African Americans were determined that they needed to give meaning to freedom. So what does freedom mean? Freedom means the right to an education. It means the right to vote engage in the political process, but it also means the right to health care. And what I observed in the 1890s is the development of a black professional class. They're they're turning inward in many ways. We need to develop and, and expand the opportunities for the people in our communities so that we can help ourselves preserve our rights. But in the long run, the right to vote was absolutely critical because without the vote, none of this other stuff mattered. And that's where I started my first, my first book was on the white primary, which essentially tended to make African Americans bereft of their fundamental constitutional right for engagement in a participatory democracy. So the vote was really important to them, but education and health care were also important. Of course, briefly, the University of South Carolina was desegregated. It was the only mm-hmm. white Southern university that was desegregated at, at all levels, trustees, faculty, and, and students. True. And you talk about, uh, Darlene, about the creation of a black middle class. This is where the black colleges such as Voorhees, well, actually Voorhees is a little bit later, but Allen and Benedict, mm-hmm. Uh, and these others mm-hmm. came into existence. Healthcare, the Cannon Street Hospital in Charleston, which which trained black midwives mm-hmm. and black nurses. Mm-hmm. This was the African-American community really taking care of its own because in 1877, one end of Reconstruction, when federal right. troops were withdrawn, the university was closed. 
because it had been desegregated. And so the education, particularly at the college level for African Americans, was going to have to be within that community. But ironically, the public school system that came about in 1868, at least through Wade Hampton's administration, the per-pupil expenditure for African American children and white children was exactly the same. That was pitiful, but it still, it was, that's one of those stories where South Carolina doesn't quite fit into the the general picture. And it continued, Walter, really, until you get the 1895 Constitution. It's pretty equal. I mean, as you said, it's small, but per pupil thing. It's only after the courts say that segregation is the law of the land and that you've basically taken away a meaningful vote from the African-American population that you see the sort of restriction of giving funds. And then you don't even really have black high schools uh, well, where also, people can go. Also, the uh, there was no compulsory right. education law, so large numbers of poor white and black children did not attend any schools which might have been made available. Uh, they were in the fields or later in the textile mills. And by the early 20th century, South Carolina has created in the State Department of Education, there are three assistant superintendents, if you were. There was one for white schools. There was one for black schools. There was one for rural schools, which was basically rural white schools. If you get to York County, they actually had, in the Rock Hill school system, they had a separate school system for mill children until you got to high school. So they had, they had an additional and when Separation. I grew up in 96, Walter, first through fourth grade, the kids who were on the mill went to their own separate school. And then after the fourth grade, the fifth grade, they came over. They figured by then it had all been established in the schools what it was about. I didn't think you were that old. I'm very old. <laughs> very old. D- Darlene, I'm saying your, your jaw dropped. Some of this, that, uh, and actually... An, in some areas of York County, you also had a separate school for the Catawba, so you can throw yeah, in another. That's right. Oh, my God. And in Sumter County for the Turks. That's right. <laughs> you know, one of the things this that I, I, I want this conference to do is to understand how important history is. And uh, Walter and I both, and particularly Walter, has led this charge on Let's Teach South Carolina History. But after Brown v. Board, many states, not just South Carolina, Mississippi and other, they passed resolutions saying you have to teach your state's history. And the reason is, of course, is to preserve our way of life. This is after Brown v. Board, which I argue is really a South Carolina case uh, out of Clarendon, South Carolina. So our history had been used as a way to teach white supremacy in our schools. And I think that's important. The same textbooks are used for black children as for white children. And I think it's important that we understand how our history has been taught. And there was a reason for it. I wish we could think of a good reason why we'd want them to teach it now. Well, uh, well, I would, I would well. say, Vernon, if we don't understand where we've come from sure. and how we've gotten this far and what we're doing, you're not going to have a functioning citizenry. No, it's essential for democracy. And we can take this back to Lincoln. Lincoln understood this better than anyone, the importance of education. His first public statement, uh, literally, when he first runs for office, the first time he really ever loses when the public is is voting, he says the most important thing is education. Uh, And as Darlene and I were talking at lunch, of course, you get your land-grant colleges during that time that becomes so important. But I think we forgot how important mm-hmm. education is in our history for a democratic society to function. You've got to have it. And, well, and, and to go back to my concentric circles that I mentioned a few minutes ago, that I think when you study history, it's important to study history on several levels. That it is important to learn national history and international history and to understand the broad scope of events. But I think it's crucial, both I think for historians and for average people, to tie it down to places where they live, to make the broader historical forces manifest in understanding how they grew up, the circumstances of their life. And that's why I think teaching state history and local history can be so important. 
Well, again, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Darlene Clark Hine, Bill Hine, Vernon Burton, and Peter Eisenstadt about an upcoming conference at Clemson, Lincoln's unfinished work dealing with Reconstruction, past and present, bringing that idea of changing society into uh, the 21st century. Just before we had that break, Peter Eisenstadt was talking about the importance of local history, and boy, did he press my button. <laughs> that in the American Revolution. <laughs> because, and you're going to get teachers say, well, we don't live in Charleston. What kind of history do we have? Well, you can look at many towns upstate. What is that big brick building there? What did that used to be? That was the mill. How did that change things? What about the railroad track running through the center of town? In most counties, you can find what's left of a canal system. How does all this, this all ties in with things that were national, even international in scope, but how it had an impact on, on South Carolina? Some of the first textile mills to actually use electricity in the world were in South Carolina. I mean, it's, and just walk down the street and you look at what's there, you're still going to find some places, a feed and seed store. You're going to find, today we call the mom and pop stores. Or this might have been an agricultural hub. So, I mean, yes, there are things that are changing. Commute, the whole idea of community is changing, but every community has a story. And one of the things that I have felt pretty good about is local historical societies, whether they're through their, actually the local historical society or the local county library has now picked up local history as a major focus and as a resource, and that's extremely mm-hmm. important. I wanted to underline what you said because most people, when they think of South Carolina the history, they don't think of South Carolina as having had a black majority population for so long, as Peter Wood's book uh, demonstrated to us. So even the demographics of America need to be studied, and in the South in particular. Well, and of course, it is changing almost daily. I know at least three of you as historic. well, all of you might have remembered the late George Rogers, who gave a talk in the, the 1980s about who is a South Carolinian. And in those days, people were still defining South Carolinians in terms of black and white. They weren't breaking the white population down in terms of where they might have ethnicity. They weren't breaking the black population down. And George, bless his heart, wasn't aware of, even then, the small but growing Hispanic and Asian populations in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And the last census had people from well over 100 countries. I couldn't, don't ask me to name them all. Wow. But, but I mean, it's an incredible mix, which actually South Carolina started out that way. Very multicultural. And I wanted to underline what you were saying about local history as well. When I taught at Illinois, uh, people were surprised, but even those large surveys, I would have students do a little local history of their community. It turned more students into historians because they can identify with it. And as Walter says, every community has an interest. I've never seen people not find interesting things historically about their community. One of the reasons I wanted to do this conference, when I first taught South Carolina history in South Carolina uh, at Coastal Carolina University, and then again at Clemson, I was sort of shocked that not only did not one white student, but none of my African-American students at least they claimed they had not heard about Orangeburg and the Orangeburg massacre that you write about, Bill. It just sort of surprised me how we could go through our history and not know. And then that led me to find out how much more they, as Walter was saying, did not know about the history of the states. That meals, now they're gone, but they didn't know when they came or, or any of those sort of things. No, I mean, tell students and and. In the 1970s, the largest employers in the state of South Carolina were the textile mills, mm-hmm. 200,000 jobs. Wow. Well, so. well, somebody once told me that there's no such thing as a dull community. They're only dull historians. <laughs> I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. And, um, but, you know, it, I, I've, I've done local history in other states, particularly New York, and I haven't done that much work in the history of South Carolina. But going back to what Vernon was saying in the beginning, 
race is a, is a question everywhere. You certainly find it in upstate New York and other places. But I think race has made local history more complex in a state like South Carolina maybe than in other parts of the United States. There are questions of power and other things that need to be unraveled. And it's, you know, when you start looking at what buildings were used for and railroads and canals, there's this level of tension. And it's one of, as Vernon said, race and all of its different manifestations is something that this conference wants to look at. And I think it, it's obviously, it's a crucial way to look at the lo- local history of South Carolina as well. That's an interesting thing you asked Darlene earlier. I was thinking about Walter here, and that is how when I grew up, there was clearly class distinctions in small towns and things. I think probably less so now, uh, but I could be wrong just from observation. But we have sort of downplayed just how much class was an element, particularly among politicians, as they used it uh, when African Americans couldn't vote. They would use often class as a way to mobilize voters. Well, let's go back to Mr. Tillman. There you go. Or even a better or worse example is Cole Blee's. With Tillman, it was the small farmers versus the merchants, the bankers, the large landowners. And with Blee's, it was the mill workers and the white laboring classes which had grown mm-hmm. against the town. Tillman, 1890s, Coley Blee's, early 20th century. Cottonhead Smith. Yeah. But you can even take it right down to modern day because Olin Johnson comes out of that mill vote too. It becomes less and less. And, of course, what happens is the civil rights movement complicates this thing later on about class. And there's a lot of elements there we can explore. I think in the conference well, about class know, and race and how these are and ethnicity and when gender. did you when did you come when did your family come how long were you here how many how many generations can you go back you know a kind of authenticating process of who is a real true South Carolinian as and, opposed to these interlopers well and see that's that's changing rapidly we've got counties now that where a majority of the population are not native south carolinians and within the state mobility is much greater than it that used to be um, when i first started teaching south carolina history back in 1975 <laughs> uh, i could look at the role and by the names i could say okay you are a shoot your name is Shuler. you're probably from orangeburg lexington or newberry counties yeah. by the time i retired six years ago there was a young man who had a Germanic sounding name and I said oh your folks must have come and he said "Uh, well we're from Spartanburg (laughs) Uh, but he goes home and finds out that guess what his grandparents had been from Orangeburg he just had lost that connection Mm -hmm. that for generations South Carolinians black and white knew who their folks were and where they were from and that was important and it was a sense of community, Walter, for good and bad, I think. That really is important. Something we should probably explore is what is community today compared to what we thought of it historically. And how communities were organized. And when you are talking about reconstruction and changing things, you've got to have a sense of community to make it work, whatever that community is. And I was thinking what you said about Bill Four, and I think there's a lot of truth there about the reconstructions that we continue reconstructing. And reconstruction doesn't necessarily mean you're getting better either. Right. You can reconstruct the other way. Fernand, you're going to be leading some panels, are you not? Yes. And All right. What, what's your panel going to be on? Well, I, I actually say lead them. I'm staying out of it. I think I will probably be on one. After our keynote, we're going to have something on voting, and that will be the sort of history of voting and then voting today. Armand Durfner, the great civil rights, voting rights lawyer, uh, will have speaking about particularly current issues and how they relate. Darlene's first book, or at least dissertation, was uh, on the white primary. And uh, we'll look at some of the issues that we're facing today about having a meaningful vote and what kind of restrictions were put on after the first Reconstruction, what's going on today mm-hmm. in, in terms of voting. But I'm going to try to uh, let these folks 
who are coming in have their say since Clemson can hear me most any time and more than they, <laughs> they want to. But I might be involved in that one a, a little bit and organize it. We certainly want to do something on education. We've asked Bill to uh, speak a little bit about his book. He's doing other things as well. But we have several, Chris Spann and Jim Anderson from University of Illinois, are going to come down and talk about education, uh, the change over time in education mm-hmm. and educational opportunities. Uh, we have a, a panel. In fact, I asked a Pete driving down. Does this look bad, Pete? We've got a panel on women, and they're all women doing the uh, talk on women and issues of uh, the many reconstructions. Let me add that not all the female historians <laughs> are in that panel, and we have uh, we have a number of um, women historians speaking on on a range of subjects, not just on on women's history. You know, I'm I'm going to be speaking on one of my projects, the history of integration, and speaking about changing understanding to what integration was. We're going to have papers on international relations, as I said, papers on American Indians. We have, we're going to have a paper on the Black Panther Party. So it's going to be a very wide-ranging conference, with once again with a with a focus on South Carolina history, but it it it's not by any means limited to um, to this. As I said, we're taking as broad a possible synoptic view of um, Lincoln's unfinished work. We're going to discuss the tough issue we face in every state now, particularly those of us in South Carolina and certainly University of North Carolina just uh, dealt with, you know, the naming of buildings, uh, the monuments and what they represent. Mm-hmm. I've said again and again that people learn their history not from the books we write or our grandchildren have larger educational funds, but from what the general public, what the state house grounds, what the name of the building is. That's where people learn their history from. So we're going to deal with that as an issue. We're going to have a a brief little uh, talk on Clemson and Clemson's history, and then we're going to break from there into uh, looking at monuments and naming and how do you go about dealing with these as historians. There probably is no one answer, but we'll hear from different perspectives on that in one panel. You and Bill Hine aren't going to happen to be on the same panel of that, are you? Not that I'm aware. <laughs> well, I, w- I, was, I was just curious because most people don't realize that the school where you taught for many right. years and where Vernon teaches now, Clemson and South Carolina State, well, Ben Tillman was responsible, responsible for the creation of both of right. those. Well, actually, throw in Winthrop. Yeah. He took care of the ladies, too. Yeah. So that complicates a lot of things. And as Bill shows in his book, his support for, a, for black teachers and a black president. Uh, but there was a reason, reason for, for that. that. That's right. <laughs> there certainly was, uh, because as Walter mentioned, Tillman d- divided the world mm-hmm. and more accurately divided South Carolina up uh, by by people and by gender. And uh, when Clemson was established as a land-grant uh, institution, uh, they took a share of the federal land-grant money, uh, but uh, Tillman was only too willing to have uh, a black school established not on an equal basis with Clemson, but they would get a share of uh, the land-grant money that uh, came about from the sale of public land as well as a second morale act that was passed in 1890. And as Walter mentioned, uh, Winthrop was established as an institution uh, for white women in uh, Rock Hill in the 1890s as well. And much to Tillman's disgust, uh, the Citadel continued to function in uh, Charleston, which he considered, as far as Tillman was concerned, it was a waste of uh, the taxpayers' money. to. Well, he campaigned on closing both the University of South Carolina and the Dude Factory in Charleston uh, with, the, with their bandbox soldiers. That's what he called them. And he said the graduates of university only look forward to when they're looking backward. I mean, and actually you talk about dividing, creating Clemson for working farmers, the South Carolina College or the University of South Carolina, that's where the elite white students tended. When, you know, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about populism and talk about Tillman and Cole Bleas and people like that. And what is populism? What is real populism? 
And that's an example of the sort of question that we would like to look at from a long historical perspective, going back to the roots of populism in the late 19th century to how the term is being used in contemporary American politics. Well, in, in this state, one of the early evidences was the Farmers' Alliance, which initially started out as an integrated group, and then it became the Farmers' Alliance and the Colored Farmers' Alliance. But that certainly was a populist movement, and that was a national movement. The Grange, the same, the same way. And all this based upon farmers, not laboring class, but, but farmers. This is the 1880s, 1890s. And the reason that basically you didn't have a real populist party in South Carolina was Tillman who sort of stole their rhetoric and, and clothing things and made it about race as opposed to what Georgia had, which was some interracial cooperation. And they had some in North Carolina and Virginia. Yeah, very much in North Carolina. Yeah. Successful yeah. in North Carolina. Um, we've got about five minutes left, mm-hmm. and so I want to let everybody have their say before we sign off. Darlene clark Hein, I'm going to start with you. Any last words for our listeners? I think it's really, really important to become more aware of the complexity of uh, Southern history. And one of the ways that I've tried to complicate uh, South Carolina history is by looking at the development of the black professional class, the lawyers, the, the, the doctors, black women physicians, the nursing training schools. Uh, how did these people essentially from the, from the turn of the century down into the 50s really laid the foundation for what would become the civil rights movement with the, uh, you know, we talk about the Brown v. Board of Education decision. And again, very rarely do we talk about how the struggle actually began in Clarendon County. That's something that I want to uh, cement in our consciousness, that South Carolina is a very important location for understanding the uh, development of African-American community and class structure and willingness to be free. (laughs) And and I could not agree more that it's complicated, and particularly in South Carolina, it's absolutely right, it's complicated. All right, Bill Hine, your turn. It is complicated. (laughs) It's a small state, but it's got a big history. And that history is sometimes not only complex, it's extremely disturbing. There are people who lived in the past. Some of the names who we've discussed today are people who we would not cherish as role models. There are others who we would. It's important to know these people, to acknowledge them, to understand the role they played in the development of this state uh, we are sorrier for it if we don't understand our uh, past. I think that the role of education, the role of a conference uh, like Peter and uh, Vernon are organizing uh, has uh, uh, an enormously significant role to play as we delve into the past and try to understand uh, what made us into the kind of people we are today. All right. Peter Um you know, not only is history complicated and sometimes terrifying, but it's very interesting. All right. And Verna Barton? I, I want to emphasize that it's important to understand why I'm doing this at Clemson. Clemson is built on the pl- slave plantation of John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun is the politician. Uh, he was a statesman. I'll, I'll give him that vice president, secretary, almost every position, who, though, introduced the pro-slavery theory into the Senate. And until then, until then, people like Abraham Lincoln could live with the idea of a necessary evil. But this was very different. It said this was the best system in the world. And, of course, we've spoken about Tillman, who is sort of the prototype of the racial demagogue there. We will visit the Strom Thurmond Institute. Strom Thurmond was a Dixiecrat candidate. Uh, He did a lot of good things for South Carolina, and I personally think that that changed his legacy greatly. But what I'm trying to say is I think 
as opposed to run away from it. We need to own our history. We need to say this is who we were, this is what we did, but what's important is what we're going to be. And that's what this conference is about. It is understanding our history and then saying how do we go forward and what do we want to do. We have an opportunity to lead this nation and to lead it in the right direction. I hope this conference will give us an opportunity to discuss ways that we can do that. Peter Eisenstadt, Vernon Burton, Darlene Clark Hine, Bill Hine, I want to thank all of you for a fascinating and complicated discussion of Lincoln's unfinished work. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I enjoyed being with Darlene Clark Hine, Bill Hine, Vernon Burton, and Peter Eisenstadt to talk about this topic of Lincoln's unfinished work, Reconstruction, often misunderstood, often misinterpreted, but a part of the history of all of us who live here in the Palmetto State. And as one or more of our guests said today, in discussing this topic, it's complicated. It's complex, but it's rich. And it is part of our history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.